Well, it's good to be here with you all. Um, I have, as Brian said, I've been really grateful to be getting to know Brian and Justin and Ryan and other brothers uh, at various uh, Moscow events and Presbytery events and whatnot. And um, I know several of you here and there from either you guys being from Moscow or visiting Moscow or Fight Life Feast or other things. Uh, so uh, great to uh, see you all and see your digs and see what uh, the Lord's uh, doing here. So um, let me ask God's blessing on our time. God, we thank you very much uh, for what you're doing here in Denver. Father, thank you that Jesus died and rose again, and when he did, uh, you gave him the nations as his inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, and we thank you that that included Denver. Father, we ask that uh, your spirit would be here tonight as your word is taught as we meditate on these things, and that you would equip us to be men who are strong. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. So um, the first uh, talk I'm going to give is just titled, What is a Man? So I'm doing two, two talks, What is a Man? And then um, the second one is, um, Do Not Give Your Strength to Women. Um, so the, the first one, What is a Man? Um, basic uh, working definition that I'm going to give you right from, the, from jump here is a man is a kind of human being who bears God's image specifically for the purpose of using his strength to joyfully and sacrificially take responsibility. A man is a kind of human being who bears God's image specifically by using his strength to joyfully and sacrificially take responsibility. And so I want to particularly focus on that element of strength. I want to defend that and then towards the end get uh, into some of the details what I mean by Uh, joyfully and sacrificially taking responsibility. But I want to start by just um, laying a foundation of that theme of strength, that a man is called, is created by God to image him particularly through strength, through strength. So this is, I don't want you to just take my word for it, I want you to take God's word for it. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 29, says that the glory of young men is their strength. The glory of young men is their strength. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, this is interesting because Paul is actually writing a church in Corinth full of men and women, boys and girls, old and young, and in his closing, his closing charges, as Paul sometimes does at the end of the letter, maybe he knows it's at the end and so he just wants to get the last things out and he sort of like gives them a number of instructions, encouragements, commands, and at the end in verse 13 he says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. It's interesting that he tells the whole church that. Now, clearly, obviously, the men need to lead in that, but he's in some way instructing the whole church. You all, in some ways, need to be strong like men are strong. Act like men, be strong. And I think all of these instructions, be watchful. I think that's a masculine characteristic as well. um, Stand firm in the faith. That's a masculine characteristic as well. But specifically there at the end, act like men, be strong. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Um, Also, 1 John 2. John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. 
and you have overcome the evil one. So again, there's that theme again. John says, young men, you're strong. And specifically here, um, that's through the word of God abiding in them, and that strength is what allows them to overcome the evil one. So, so clearly this is, includes physical strength, but here it's also clearly including spiritual strength, strength of virtue, strength of character, strength of conviction. One more passage, uh, Psalm 19. Remember Psalm 19 uh, be- begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night knowledge. All of creation is talking about God all the time. And there's no language in which their language is, that, that their message is not heard. Nobody has any excuses. Everybody's getting the memo all day long and all night long. And, and then it, it, it says like, and then it says, and, and this, the glory of it is like the sun going forth, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man running its course with joy. And this is just sort of the theme there of, of uh, the glory of, of man is a strong man. So he, he says the glory of God is displayed in the glory of creation when the glory of man is displayed in his strength. In a similar way, that's how, the, that's how that simile works, that's how that, that comparison works. Just as the sun declares God's glory, as the sun just bursting up and careening through the sky. It's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber with joy. He got married. (laughs) It was a good day. And like a strong man rejoicing to run his race. Um, Think for a moment just about that idea of glory. Uh, Glory is what makes somebody shine. Uh, glory is, is what makes people shine. Sometimes I, I use the example, you know, um, surely you have been sucked into the, uh, the YouTube vortex one time or another, or, or the Facebook vortex, where there's, there's a video showing, and it's somebody doing something amazing. You know, you know, you had the Olympics recently. I didn't really watch the Olympics, but there was a few clips of snowboarders doing, I mean, this is Colorado, right? You guys do snowboarding? No? I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I've snowboarded one time in my life, and it really hurt a lot. But, you know, I mean, people can do amazing things on snow. Um, and, and you watch it, and you just, your jaw drops, and you're like, how many spins was that? And then they grabbed it, and they tucked, and they did the other thing, and they landed it. That's Glory. Or, you know, the sports videos you watch, the, you know, the slam dunk contests or the shots from midcourt or whatever it is, um, and it's, that's, you just say, wow, people are amazing. That's glory. Okay, that's, that's what, that's, you, you think glory, think shining. And, and certain people have certain glories. That's their glory. That's what they were made for. And when they do it, everybody just says, wow. That's glory. And, and so, the glory of men, the thing that we're supposed to glory in, is our strength. That's the glory of young men. It's the glory of man to be strong. Now, a, a man's glory uh, can include their appearance, just appearance. You know, sometimes God's glory is described just as this bright light, shining light. Uh, but I want to argue that 
for men, it primarily points to action. Action and strength of conviction, strength of character, strength of virtue, not primarily our appearance. Um, The Bible doesn't mind pointing out when men are handsome. It actually does that occasionally. Uh, I think it was, uh, I think, I think, I think Saul and David are both described as handsome men, good-looking. Right, so it's no, no problem. It's fine. Some men are, I guess, better looking than others. I don't know. But the Bible says that. Okay. But the glory of men is not their appearance. That's not, that's not our glory. Our glory is our strength. And, and it's what they do with their strength that God has given them. That is where our glory is. I think this is also related to the theme of courage. Uh, C.S. Lewis says somewhere that courage is not merely one of the virtues. It's not merely one of the virtues. C.S. Lewis says that courage is every virtue at its testing point. Which I think is a really good observation. I think, I think, it, I think that's fair. I think that's, I think that's solid. Because you think about you know, virtue, a virtue like patience, and you can be patient, you know, when everything's going fine. I'm such a patient person. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't blown up at anybody recently. Uh, I, I haven't lost my temper or lost my cool at anyone. And, and, and yet, really, what, what, we're, what matters is when it gets tested. So someone is being really difficult. Someone is, is, is being really hard to handle or things are not going well for you for a long time. Now your patience is being tested. And Lewis would say, now this is where your courage has to kick in. Are you still willing to be patient now, waiting for weeks, waiting for months, dealing with this difficulty over the course of years? Are you still going to be patient That takes courage. That takes strength. Again, any number of other virtues you could run the same thing on. Temperance, self-control. Temptations coming at you. Will you be strong? No, still not interested. No, still not interested. No, think of Joseph, Potiphar's wife. Day after day after day, it says, I'm available. No one's here. And Joseph says, no, 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 no. It takes strength. It takes courage. It's, courage is every virtue at its testing point. So, so biblical, godly, masculine strength, I want to put these things together, biblical gospel uh, uh, Godly masculine strength is commitment to virtue, to the pain, to the suffering, and even to the death. That's what biblical masculine strength is for. And, and that commitment to virtue, that fierce commitment to virtue, um, may be again resistance to temptation, it may be in continuing to be patient, but it may also mean continuing to go to work. 
in a really difficult situation. Continuing to go home to a wife and kids in a difficult situation. It's fierce commitment to virtue. I gave my word. I will not break it. Psalm 15 says that that the righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. He keeps his word. Even when it hurts, even when he's losing now. That's biblical masculine strength. Fierce commitment to virtue, even to the pain, it hurts. Even to the suffering, it's hurting a lot and it's not going away, even to the death. And courage, this biblical masculine strength, holds the line, refusing to budge because it's the right thing, because God said to do it, because you gave your word. And fundamentally, the only way you can have this kind of biblical strength, this kind of godly masculine strength, is because you trust in Christ who raises the dead. If you don't know that Christ, if you don't know that Jesus, then it doesn't make sense to keep on going, which is why so many men fail in our culture. So many men give up. Like, this sucks. Nobody notices what I'm doing. I'm gonna be dead in a few years, and then nothing. It makes absolutely no sense to keep your word under those circumstances. It makes no sense to keep suffering under those circumstances. Unless Jesus is alive, unless he rose from the dead, unless he is the one who raises the dead. If you want to be that kind of man, you've got to be a man who trusts in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And, And the... And the, and the punchline and the, and the key thing here is, is that if Jesus is alive and he is the one who raises the dead, he is risen from the dead and he will raise all his people from the dead, then that means that he will raise us from this moment or else he will raise us at the end. And ultimately both, ultimately both. Right, so, you know, walk, walk through it. You're, you know, difficulty at work, difficulty with your wife, difficulty with parents, difficulty with kids, difficulty with health, difficulty with Joe Biden, whatever. Right? And whatever, whatever it is, it's, it's like, I'm going to keep being faithful. I'm going to keep doing my duty. I'm not going to budge. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to keep going even to the pain, even to the suffering, even to the death, because Jesus is alive and he raises the dead. And frequently he raises the dead in history. Frequently he raises us up from the the death of a moment, a death of a situation. There you are, faithfully serving, faithfully giving, pouring yourself out. Jesus sees, right? Jesus sees, and he raises us up. Again, Joseph. Think of Joseph. I mean, if anybody had a reason to give up, to get mad, to get bitter, Joseph had some good reasons. You know the story of Joseph, right? Do you teach that here at this church? No? You know that? Is he the guy who's 
Exactly. You got it. I mean, I mean, from jump, he's got problems. From jump. He, he's the youngest brother. I mean, it's hard enough being a little brother. I'm the oldest of five boys. I kind of sometimes feel slightly bad about my little brother. Just for a minute, and then I don't anymore. He's actually bigger than all of us, so he could beat us all up now. Um, but Joseph was the littlest brother. He was the second to youngest. He wasn't liked. He was a favorite son. The dad, I mean, the dad kind of made it worse. Jacob, you know, sort of father fail there, you know, having favoritism and stuff. But he gets, he gets sold by his brothers into slavery. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, but before that, he was having dreams, and his brothers just hated him, despised him. Then he's sold into slavery. He ends up at a pretty decent position in Potiphar's house, and then you got the whole situation with Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him. Over a long time, Joseph refuses, and at the end, Potiphar's wife's so mad about it that she accuses him of actually assaulting her. Potiphar's wife goes to her, her husband and says, he assaulted me, and there's no witnesses, and so it's her word against his, so he's thrown into prison. Could have been angry. I mean, think about all this. All these opportunities to be angry, be bitter, to give up, to think, you know, what's a, you know, what's a guy got to do? to get a break in this world. He ends up in jail. He, he's, he's, but he, does, he never gets bitter. He never gets angry. And, and the only explanation is he knows there's a God who sees. It doesn't matter if anybody else sees, if God sees. Right? He knows there's a God who sees, and so he, he doesn't give up. He's in the jail, and he's just working his butt off in jail now. And he gets, he gets um, promoted and he's like the lead prisoner or whatever. They're like, you run the, you know, you take care of all the prisoners. A couple, a couple of pharaohs, pharaohs the king of Egypt, a couple of his butler and his, and his, his wine tasters, his, his uh, vintner or whatever, get thrown into jail with him. This is kind of a hoity-toity jail, I think. You know? <laughs> this is the white collar jail, I think, maybe. I don't know. But they get thrown into jail, they're cute, and they, and they both have dreams. And Joseph, who's had dreams before, has the ability to sort of interpret these dreams and tells one of them, yeah, in three days, you're going to get beheaded, sorry. And in three days, you're going to get your job back. And he says, and when you do, will you please remember me? Because I'm here unjustly. Would you tell the Pharaoh who I am and that I interpreted your dream accurately? And tell him that I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do anything, any crime to be committed here. And the guy says, oh yeah, of course, I'll remember you. Three days later, it happens, right? The baker's beheaded, the, um, the, the, the cupbearer is, is restored, and the cupbearer forgets him. Again, another opportunity to think, nobody sees me here. But he didn't. Finally, years later, the Pharaoh starts having dreams the cupbearer says, oh, you know what? Uh, there was somebody who interpreted my dream a long time ago. You should talk to him. And, and so Joseph's brought out of jail. Here's the Pharaoh's dream and says, yeah, I know what it means. It means there's going to be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. And so you need to be saving up right now during these seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. And, and, uh, and you should set somebody over all of that so that we're prepared for it. And Pharaoh says, 
maybe for the very first time in Joseph's life, here's another human being say something, <laughs> maybe, just, maybe just shook him. Pharaoh says, I can't think of anyone more wise than you. I want you to run all that. And Joseph is raised from the dead. Right? The death of being forgotten, the death of shame, the death of being falsely accused, the death of suffering and pain, he's raised. Again, the point is, is that if we're gonna be godly, masculine men, fiercely committed to virtue, fiercely committed to purity, holiness, honesty, sobriety, our marriages, our children, keeping our word, then you have to know that that's going to take courage in the midst of pain and suffering and even death, whether figuratively or physically. And the only thing that will keep you from breaking is believing that Jesus raises the dead. Either he will raise you from this situation or literally, if you go into your grave in this situation, Jesus who raises the dead will raise you up. That's what we believe. We don't merely believe that we go to heaven when we die. We do believe that. But we believe that because Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. He will raise us up. He will give us new bodies. He will put all things right. He will make all things new. That's a core, core conviction for biblical strength. The opposite of biblical strength is effeminacy. Okay, now this is the part where I'm gonna make everybody mad. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe Brian's been punching you guys and you're ready to go. He, he actually told me that I could be rowdy. That's what he said. He said, be rowdy. You said that, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, extra rowdy. Um, okay, here's the thing. All of us, all of us, everybody in this room has, has effeminacy to repent of. You do. Okay? Effeminacy is softness. It's softness in men. And, and, and that's wherever we're tempted to be soft in those places where God calls us to be hard and strong and courageous, that is where we are not being men. We're being effeminate. We're being soft. I think, I think you can think of this effeminacy in sort of three different categories. They all, they kind of overlap, but just broadly, and this is, there's, I've got some scripture texts here. I'm not going to read them all, but I, if you want me to talk about this later, we can talk, we can look at some of these texts together. But um, softness can be sometimes as simple as just cowardice and fear. Um, and actually a number of texts, um, in, in the Bible, when men are called to be strong in the face of battle, but they're afraid, it says that they, be, they have become like women, which is probably illegal in the state of Colorado to say out loud, right? Um, I actually just 
finished reading Jeremiah um, this afternoon, and, it, and one of the passages is in Jeremiah 51, verse 30. And it's talking about Babylon getting judged. And God says that they're mighty men when God has turned against them. Babylon, the great empire Babylon, he says their mighty warriors are going to begin trembling, and they will become like women. Because at the very point where, where a man is called to fight, where a man is called to be brave, where a man is called to be courageous, if we don't, if we tremble, if we run away from the battle, we're acting like women. Which is not a, this is not, it's not a slight on women. It's not, that's not a woman's glory. A woman's glory is not her strength. She has different strengths. But that's, but that's, that's not her glory. And, and, but we're acting like women. We're being effeminate. This softness can also be a confusion of glory, seeking the glory of a woman through an inordinate care or concern for appearances and luxury. So, uh, for example, when, uh, when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist in the Gospels, he actually says, um, they, they, um, he says, you know, when you, when you went after John the Baptist, when you went out to see him, what did you go out to see? Uh, did, you, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? You know, what kind, of, what kind of man was John? John the Baptist was a dude, right? I mean, he, he lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. You know, he was, I think, I think it says in the Greek, a badass, <laughs> right? Uh, he, he, he says, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? You know, did you go out to see somebody who lives in king's palaces? He says, people who live in king's palaces wear soft clothes. Soft clothing. That word for soft is actually the word for effeminate. <laughs> he, no, he didn't wear soft clothes. He wore camel skin. Again, he was, he was a man. He was a fighter. And so sometimes men can become effeminate through cowardice and fear. You are called to do something difficult, hard. And it's your job to stand there and do it. Maybe you need to bring up something with your wife. And you know that's going to be hard. And it would be easier to go work on the car, which also needs fixing. And there you are making an excuse or correcting your children, or bringing up something with a friend at church. Right? Who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. Right? Why would I ruin my perfectly good day by telling some other guy that I think he was being harsh with his kid? Right? You mean it would take some courage, and you're afraid. Or, secondly, effeminacy can be a confusion of glory. I'm going to look good. An inordinate care and concern for appearances and luxury. Again, there's, there's sort of ways that we do this. Men like that we can hide in this. You know, we can be like, um, I mean, you know, I think the guys that spend all their time looking in the mirror at the gym are effeminate. They're like, well, they're strong. They can kick your ass. I know. And they're acting like women in front of the mirror. 
Their glory is to use that strength. I don't care. Go work out. Be strong. That's cool. I'm good with that. Now use your strength. Don't look at it. And then they put on their little bikini things and stand in front of people. Right? There's nothing manly about that at all. That's not. I want to look at your strength. I don't want to look at that. Right? Use your strength. A woman's glory actually is her physical beauty. Right? This, this is the glory of a woman. The glory of a woman is her physical beauty. It's, that's not the glory of a man. When God made Eve, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that's not just sort of like a weird, like, I don't, you know, um, Adam thing or Genesis thing. It's actually Hebrew poetry, and in Hebrew poetry, the way that you actually do a comparative, you know what a comparative is or a superlative? No, good, better, best, right? Pretty, pretty, prettier, prettiest, that's comparative superlative, right? Strong, stronger, strongest, right? Well, in, in Hebrew, you do um, uh, the noun of the noun. So song of songs is the songiest song, <laughs> I don't know. We don't, have a Hebrew, we don't have an English for that. That's why we just call it Song of Songs, right? Holy of Holies is most holy place. It's the holiest of holy places, right? Holy of Holies. That's how you do it in Hebrew. Bone of my bones is like, like you're like me, but way better. Flesh of my flesh is like you're like me, but perfected. You make me look good. You're like me, except you actually are nice looking. In 1 Corinthians, it says that a, that a woman's glory is her long hair. God gave her long hair as her glory, and it says in the same place that it is absolutely shameful for a man to have long hair. It's shameful. It's effeminate. You're not a woman. And you say, well, how long is too long? Shut up. <laughs> Just be obedient. Your glory is not your appearance, right? If you have to worry about your hair, if you have to worry about your nails, if you have to worry about your appearance more than, you know, whatever, the five-second check, you're being effeminate. You have better things to do with your time. You're a man. Use your strength for good. Use your strength to fight. And this softness is not at all unrelated to homosexuality. We are a soft culture. And because we're a soft culture, we are marinating in homosexuality. You're marinating in it. And unfortunately, frequently, that's in, the, in conservative Christian churches too. Men that actually act like men are discouraged. Men who actually take initiative, men who actually have opinions, men who actually are bold and courageous, who speak up and aren't, afi- aren't afraid to have a good manly argument or discussion about something, they're discouraged and told, hey, you, you need to calm down. You need to be more nice, friendly. And we, you know, we frequently train our boys up in that, and then we wonder why so many of them are struggling with same-sex attraction. Right? 
We tell them that this is what a real man is like. A real man is really nice, really gentle, and is really, really careful about what everyone thinks about him. Don't offend anybody. So you're saying, basically, you're training men to spend all their time caring about what other men think of them. How could that not go wrong? You're training. You're discipling them to be homosexuals. To find their meaning in the affirmation of other men. So, God created Adam first so he could die first. God created Adam first so he could die first. And he did. At least initially figuratively. God took a rib out of his side in order to create Eve. God put him in a deep sleep in a coma. He went into a death-like sleep. And Eve was taken from his side. And this is a type, of course, of Jesus, who was spear went in his side when he was saving us. But it's also a type of all manhood. You are called by God to use your strength sacrificially to obey God and provide for others. You are, you are made by God to use your strength to obey him and protect others, care for others, take responsibility for those around you. But it is crucial that we sacrifice our strength obediently. It is crucial that you sacrifice your strength obediently. Use your strength obediently. Many male sins consist of false sacrifices. Many male sins consist of false sacrifices. Most, you know, you're born loving the idea of courage and heroism. Every boy is born and wants to be a hero, right? Every boy is born and thinks, where are the bad guys? Let me at them, I will kill them, right? This is, this is, this is, this is innate in us. We love courage and heroism, and so we're not usually so easily led into pure cowardice. Most men don't think, I know, I'm going to be a coward, right? <laughs> no, what we do is we spin it. We, we, we describe to ourselves, we tell a story about how, you know what, I could do that or I could do this other thing, and it's also really hard. But it's not the thing you're supposed to do. And so, like, again, you know, use, the, use the car example. You're like, it's been making a noise, right? It really does need somebody to check on it. And my wife and kids are in there, and my car's over there. Honey, I've got to really work on the car. Now, sometimes the obedience sacrifice is to work on the car, right? Some of you need to get your hands dirty sometimes. But frequently, we can use the thing that looks manly, that'll, that'll sound more manly later. Yeah, I was banging on that thing, and it wouldn't work, and I cussed it out, and then I took it out and put it back in and got oil all over it, and then, yeah. It works now, right? Or you could go inside and help your wife with the kids. Sometimes that's the obedient sacrifice. Frequently that's the obedient sacrifice. Changing diapers, spanking bottoms, trying to sort out tangles between people. 
What's the obedient sacrifice? Sometimes we choose the disobedient, the cowardly path, and then we decorate it with suffering. We, we try to decorate it with what it looks like sacrifice, which is what most tattoos and piercings are for men. Right? That's men dressing up like men. Right? Look at that. Look at that. Look, I got holes in me, cuts on me. No, those, that's, that's dollar store scars. That's dollar store scars. Get real ones. Go out and actually fight. Go out and actually live. I don't really like the phrase servant leader at all. It's a phrase that's common in a lot of Christian churches, servant leader. I'm a, are, we, are you a servant leader? Do you believe in servant leadership? The reason I don't like it is because frequently what people mean by it is that you lead only by serving anyone and everyone's whims. Frequently that's what they mean by it. You want to be a servant leader? Look, I've got something I need you to do. Which frequently means you better do whatever your wife tells you to do. Because aren't you a servant leader? Aren't you here to serve her? No, I'm, you're put here to serve by leading. You're, you're not to lead by serving. Do you see the difference? The, the, the one who leads only by serving become, is essentially a slave of other people's whims. But you're not allowed to do that because you're a servant of Jesus. You must obey Jesus first and foremost, and that means sometimes you're going to offend the deacon's wife. Well, I really think you need to do this. Well, no. That's not what I'm going to do. But aren't you supposed to be a servant leader? Yes, I, I serve by leading. I serve by leading you closer to Christ. I serve by leading you in obedience and doing what I believe is best for you and those around me. 